So, John, if you could manage any one band or singer throughout history, who would you choose and why? I think Elton John. Elton John? Yeah. He sounds like a handful. No, he seems easy to work with. Welcome, everybody, to Beyond the Box Set, a podcast where we pitch prequels, sequels, and spin offs to films that don't have any. I'm Harry, and joining me as always is John. Hello. And John, we've got a guest on this week. We do, we have another guest. It's time for our monthly Patreon episode. So mm-hmm. we're joined today by one of our very generous supporters, Julio Oliveira from the Contrarians podcast. Thanks for joining us, Julio. Hey, how's it going? Very good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. I got to uh, take off from work early so I could come record for you uh, guys. So it's, oh. it's a good day already. Oh, great. Fantastic. <laughs> Happy to facilitate that. So. Yeah, good work. <laughs> uh, and so, obviously, whenever we have a guest on, we always let the guest choose the film. So, what film have you chosen for us this week, Julio? Uh, well, we uh, we chose together. I think it was a, it's a group effort. Uh, mm-hmm. I had a list of four potentials, and we landed on That Thing You Do. Yes. Extended edition. <laughs> yeah, because that was the only edition I could find. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there is a version of this that isn't two and a half hours long, Harry, but unfortunately... Ah, right. uh, couldn't find that one. Sure. So. Can I just ask, what were the, the other three options? So it was uh, Office Space, War Machine, which is a Netflix movie that not many people have seen. Sure. Uh, and then uh, there was one more. I think Office Space and That Thing You Do were like the two main ones. That Thing You Do came up because uh, you guys did that musical that everybody loves, La La Land. Uh, and yes. w- in your La La Land episode, it felt like neither of you really knew who Tom Everett Scott was. Yeah. And uh, I was just shocked because <laughs> anybody that's seen that thing you do obviously goes crazy when Tom Everett Scott shows up at the end of La La Land. I mean, after watching this movie, I think that his cameo in La La Land has a lot more weight. Yes. Uh, probably the only part <laughs> oh, that yeah, I really like yeah, in the movie. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, he's just like in a jazz band. It's, uh, it's, it's <laughs> awesome. Uh, I was I was so pumped when he showed up in La La Land, and I was looking around to see if anybody else in the theater recognized him, and of course nobody did because <laughs> that thing you do. I mean, it's kind of a cult classic by now, but it's not really a very well known movie, I don't think. Mm. But yeah, yeah, it certainly connected a lot of dots for me watching this movie, especially with La La Land. I barely connected any dots with this. I saw Tom Everett Scott, and I was like, "This guy looks really familiar. Where do I know him from?" And then for ages, I was just like. Oh my God, he's the little boy in Big, isn't he? He's the guy who, who turns into Tom Hanks. Because <laughs> they look similar, all right? They, they do. They do look ridiculously similar. That's the first thing I know is that he really looks a lot like a young Tom Hanks. Yeah, which, I think it's like, yeah. oh, it's Tom Hanks is sort of giving this guy a break. That's nice. He looks more like Tom Hanks than Colin Hanks, who's Tom Hanks's yeah. actual son. Yeah. <laughs> but apparently I was reading up about this film and apparently um, Tom Hanks initially was resistant to casting him because he felt he'd looked a bit too similar to him. But then Tom Hanks' wife, Risa Wilson, said, no, he's cute, cast him. So, so she clearly has a type. Oh. <laughs> She's in the movie too. She Did is in this movie. Who, who does she play in this? She plays Marguerite, the waitress at the jazz bar, who looks like Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought that was Marissa Tomei for, for ages. She, she does look a little bit like Marissa Tomei. Yeah. Is, is it me, or are there a lot of people in this film who look just slightly like other people? Yeah, no, or, or is it just me? <laughs> No, I think you're right, there are. Well, it depends <laughs> on how you feel about that. Steve Zahn, for the longest time, I always thought Steve Zahn looked like Michael J. Fox. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I also thought that the guitarist looks a lot like Josh Hutchinson. Mm-hmm. And then the bass player in one shot, I was like, 
wait, is that Jim Parsons from The Big Bang Theory? <laughs> <laughs> so there's just so many people in this film who just, they're, they're just not quite... Who you think they are now. Yeah. I agree with the Jim Parsons comparison, but to me, uh, Jimmy looks more like, uh, well, at least back in the day, he used to remind me of uh, Hooking Phoenix. Not anymore, because I think they've diverged in their mm. looks, but... <laughs> sure, yeah. An yeah. angry hooking phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was kind of confused by the the ages of the band. Just to recap a little bit. So this film stars Tom Everett Scott, Steve Zahn, and two people whose names escape me uh, as a young band in the 1960s who are, have this one record that's really, really catchy and it ends up becoming a hit. And the film kind of just follows them as their song kind of takes off and hits mm-hmm. the charts and they just have a lot of fun. Alongside the singer-songwriter Jimmy, his girlfriend is played by Liv Tyler. <sighs> And she kind of follows them around. We'll get to her, her, yeah. Um, And she kind of follows them around. You guys, don't tell me you're going to hate Liv Tyler. I thought she was charming, but we'll get to it. But yeah, the band, I felt like the guy who played Jimmy could have been anything from like 27 to 43. He he seemed like he was in his mid to late 30s. I think that's a bit harsh. I mean, he certainly wasn't a teenager. No, none of them were teenagers, but but that's to be expected in these kind of films. Yeah, but uh, no, that's a bit harsh. Okay. I think they're supposed to be early 20s because, and I used to think that they were like straight out of high school, I think the first time I watched it a long time mm. ago. But rewatching it recently, they, I mean, they can't be because, you know, they're drinking and obviously they have way too much independence to be actual teenagers. And then I, I realized there is a moment, uh, it's, it's more clear in the extended version uh, when they address that guy, the drummer, he was in the military. So mm. he has to have been at least like, you know, a few years abroad. I think you mentioned he was stationed in Germany and something like that. So. They have to be at least early 20s, mid 20s. That does make more sense, I guess. So yeah, I hadn't seen that film before. I guess you hadn't seen this either, Harry. No, so so what, what did you think of it? Um, I really enjoyed it. Good. I think uh, my favourite bit about it was, so sort of in the first third of the film where they're sort of just starting out as, as a band and uh, the main guy, what, what's his name? Main guy's name? In the film, Guy? Is, is it Guy? Yeah, is yeah it's Guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah, so Guy's working in this hardware store run by his family and they, they just seem to not be up for him going for a life of music instead of working on the shop at all. Yeah, the and father's for, not suspo- supportive at all, is he? <laughs> yeah, and for a while, that's the way it was, and it looked like it was going to be, you've got to choose music all your life, and we don't support you if you go and run away in a band. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I feel like I've heard this story a million times before. <laughs> but then when he did go and run away with the band, his family were completely supporting him, and just like <laughs> tuning in at every sort of radio appearance and TV appearance and everything, and it was just really fun to see that. And also the drummer who broke his arm. Yeah. Like, I thought there was going to be a bit in the film where he's just super bitter about the whole thing, but he never was. He's just fine, yeah. And I really like that. It, <laughs> yeah, I, I feel it, it really bad for him. It would have felt a bit samey otherwise, I think. Yeah. Oh, they treat him like dirt. I felt terrible for that guy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... At the end, he's just like part of the family, uh, part of Guy's family, because they, it looks like they've adopted him. He's working at the store and he's having dinner with them, watching TV. So I guess it's not that bad for him at the end, but he has to look, he has to feel so bad knowing that that could have been him you know, yeah. with those guys up there on TV. We have a big proposition for you, Guy. You, uh, you still uh, playing percussion? I told you we was, didn't I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every day. We need you, Sketch. How about sitting in for Chad just for tonight? Why? Asshole. <laughs> just broke his arm. <laughs> <laughs> There's not really any conflict in this film. Up until like maybe right at the end. Like everyone's uh, everyone's broadly happy and getting on and having a good time. Like for most of this film. Like yeah. there's not a lot of conflict there, which is quite but it gets by on just pure charm and it's actually 
it's just really fun to watch. It's like, sometimes you said just watching people having a good time for two hours. Like, mm. everyone just seems to be in a really good mood throughout this entire film. Mm-hmm. I think it's more noticeable in the extended version because obviously it's longer. So mm-hmm. there's a lot more stretches of them just having fun. I think the, the original, the theatrical version, it just, it moves so fast and it's just so joyous. I think it, it just builds up a lot better. You don't mm-hmm. really have time to really just get off the high of how well they're doing. So it's just a lot of fun seeing them having fun. You know, when you add the extra 40 minutes, when you go past the two-hour mark, that really wears you down. I think you need more conflict to keep that going. And really, other than Jimmy being kind of an ass and get it, becoming more and more of an ass throughout their tour, there's really not that much. I mean, like you said, I guess you have the subplot with Guy's girlfriend, Charlie mm. Theron. Baby Charlie's Theron. How young does she look in this? My God. Like, <laughs> she was almost unrecognizable. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think that's the first time I saw her in anything. And of course, when I saw her, I didn't think that's Charlie Theron. But more like next time I saw her in something else, I was thinking, oh, that's the girl from that thing you do. <laughs> yeah, she's come a long way. You're more familiar with the regular theatrical version then. Was that a plotline that was more added in the extended cut then? Uh, yes, 100%. The two main main difference in, uh, in the extended version is... The Charlie Theron character has a lot more scenes in the extended mm-hmm. version. In the original, you see her only at the very beginning, and they don't even have that first big scene where she's talking about them being together for a year and asking about the store or anything. You just see her, I think, talking on the phone with him, and then when he shows up for his first show, and then she kind of disappears from the movie. From the moment that they go on tour, you never cut back to her doing stuff with the dentist or <laughs> anything. So she, she's just gone. And then the other thing that they do is just there's a lot more, basically, scenes that are in the original cut. and the extended cut, they just have, let's say, a couple minutes before and a couple minutes after where they start much earlier and they end much later and it's good stuff like if you've watched the original like i do and i love it you just enjoy it because it's just like extra stuff but really one of my main concerns when i was watching it was like i'm enjoying it but i wonder if john and harry are just bored out of their minds (laughs) it's just (laughs) taking forever the one thing that i think that the extended version does better just because it has so much more build-up is when you get to the del paxton scene in the jazz club it really, I think it hits a lot harder. In the original version, you're moving so fast that suddenly it feels a little jarring when you get to Del Paxton. I don't know, maybe it felt jarring for you guys here in the extended version too. It feels like it's just suddenly Guy by himself after you've had him surrounded by the band the entire time. And and there's just like, I don't know, five, seven minutes of just him and jazz and talking to his <laughs> jazz idol. I don't know, how how that scene work for you guys? Well, that was when I started thinking, oh God, he's Ryan Gosling in La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh no, Emma Stone's just repeating the same mistakes. So that just immediately made me laugh because I've, I did recognise him from La La Land and for oh God, it's the, the, the whole jazz thing again. Yeah, I, I, I'll agree with you though. It did feel like the, the extended cut, being the only version of the film I saw, it did feel like every scene went on for quite some time. Like there were, I, there were yep. noticeably long scenes. Like that scene in particular, he's in that jazz bar with Reese Wilson and Del Patterson for a solid seven to eight minutes, I think. So mm, yeah, yeah it's yep. a long time. There's also a lot more of the at the end here in this one, which uh, surprised me because I, I did not expect that. I was expecting all the other stuff, but here at the end, they actually the movie ends in uh, the original. He's uh, he's jamming with Del Paxton, and mm-hmm. that's the last thing you see. And then he goes to the hotel, and then he makes up with uh, with Faye. But here it, they show you him calling uh, Clint Howard at the radio station, and then getting offered a job, and then he goes and interviews Del Paxton. They really kind of. It's almost like the extended version really wants you to be sure to, to know that he's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And in the, in the original, it's more like, well, he got to jam with his idol and then he got a girlfriend and that should be enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Marguerite, what you got here? 
Well, you may not believe this, Dell, but this kid has heard of you. Isn't that right? Look, sit down, buy me a drink. Dell Paxton, who are you? I'm Guy Patterson. I'm from Erie, Pennsylvania. I'm in a band called The Wonders, and we're, we just cut a record. We're out here on the coast, and I play the drums, and I have all your records. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. But uh, at least I did until some of them got swiped when I was stationed in Germany, and you were playing in Germany the, the, at the time that I was stationed there. But you know what? I couldn't see because you were playing in Hamburg, and I was stationed in Munich. But I listened to your records, and I think you're great. You are my biggest fan. <laughs> Thanks. I'll have another Hennessy. Uh, so yeah, but I mean, what is it about this film that you particularly like so much that you, that makes it such a standout film for you, Julio? It's such a good time. You know, I love the music. I don't know if you guys got sick of hearing the titular tune because <laughs> it I was, plays I was, like. I was prepared to get sick of it, but I never did. No, it was it was it wasn't actually overused that much considering how yeah, it's the only song they have. Really, so after a while, I realised they're like, oh, this is why the film's titled this. It's because it's only going to be about the one track. Yeah, <laughs> and they play it again and again and again. I was like, I'm going to get sick of this at any moment, but that moment never came. So mm. whatever they did, they did it well. It helps that most of the times when they play it, it's under such different circumstances. Mm. So you have when they play it at their little competition, the first time they play together, oh, yeah. and, and it's just the fun of like, oh, this guy just changed the tempo in the mm. middle of the performance. And then you have him when they when you hear them on the radio for the first time. And then it's just like the euphoria of seeing them celebrate that they're, they're on the radio for the first time. And then you hear them play it when they mess up the first time that they play into a big audience and they you know the the mics are not on and all that stuff so every time it's like such a different experience so i think mm. that helps with the with the repetition but going back to why i love it it's just i think it's really funny and i love the music and there's just that sense of joy i i don't know tom hanks obviously i don't know him personally or anything but i think <laughs> that the movie captures what most of us would think of as the tom hanks persona you know, you you watch this movie and then you find out that it's directed and written by Tom Hanks. And you're like, oh, of course, you know, because Tom Hanks, he seems like such a nice guy. He would make this kind of wholesome celebration of just achieving your dreams, if only for, you know, a few months. <laughs> so it it's it's really, it's just a total pleasure to watch. I don't think that it says anything deep about any of the things that that it touches. You know, it's not like it's any sort of deep expose of the music industry or a deep exploration of what happens when you put all your eggs in one basket you know he like he quits his job and he really goes into this this venture of being a rock star for you know a few months and then it all goes away just as quickly it but it's just that's all kind of incidental to just having fun with the ride and i i really god i love it I I am not much for really, quoting movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not much for quoting movies, but this is one of those movies where, as I'm watching it, I I can quote a lot of the lines and just feel really giddy with it. Like little things, like the guy that's their fan, he comes up to them and uh, he's like, "Hey, that's our fan." Just that, that little line is like, I find it really funny and just <laughs> stuff like that throughout the entire movie. But I'm curious about uh, you guys. One of you at least groaned uh, when we brought up Liv Tyler. So uh, that'd be me. Is it just? specific to this movie or do you have a Liv Tyler bias? Um, I'm not sure if it's specific to this movie but it's certainly accentuated in this movie <laughs> and it's just how boring she can be. I found, <laughs> I found her so boring in this and it just reminded me of all the other Liv Tyler roles that she has just played the boring girlfriend. Because she's had this, she's had Armageddon, she's had The Incredible Hulk. Lord of the Rings is kind of the standout for me. Mm. I can kind of see what you mean because she does get stuck with playing the girlfriend quite a lot. And yeah, she definitely. is. Quite, I think she is quite a low energy kind of actress. Like yeah. she's not really 
full of beans kind of actress. But I, I, I found her quite charming in this, to be fair. I thought she was quite sweet. And I, it was so che- It was probably one of the cheesiest moments in the whole movie. But her little moment when she dumps Jimmy and she does that little speech and she says, mm. oh, I wasted a thousand kisses on you. I I thought that was pretty sweet. I, I thought she did that really nicely. Sweet isn't really the word yeah, that, I'd use for, for, for that scene. I mean, obviously that, that, that was a great scene and she did it very well. And mm. yeah, it was powerful. But for the rest of the film, I just didn't really care for... What about when the... For, for her character. For her character shop. Perhaps. But, like, yeah, it, it might not be an actress thing, but... Uh. I also really liked her, though. I mean, she didn't have loads to do, but I also liked the scene where, early on, when they first hear the song on the radio, and she's the first to hear it, and she has this massive giddy scream, and she runs around. Oh, yeah. and oh, I thought yeah. that was very charming. Like. Yeah. I think sweet is the right word to describe her. She's just... There's not much going on with her character, but really just her devotion to Jimmy, which I hadn't really... I mean, I always knew, but I think that's the main thing I took away from this rewatch was just how devoted she is to him when you every time they cut to her seeing them perform if you've seen the movie several times it's easy to forget that she's not really that interested in guy Mm. i mean they're friends and they have chemistry but she really is devoted to jimmy until the very end which is why i guess you know she has that heartbreaking moment at the end but i think that takes talent to look that into someone that obviously is just an actor in the movie (laughs) uh i think that she I guess you could say that she has a thankless role because she's not particularly funny. She's not given, like, everybody else gets to be funny in the movie. And she is just kind of there to be the girl that our protagonist is going to end up with. But for that part, I think she does really well. And I, honestly, the million kisses or thousands kisses speech, that was my least favorite part of the movie. And then it's grown on me as time goes on. I think partly because I don't think it's her fault and I've learned to forgive. Just like, it's, it's really cheesy, like you said. But there's also, I don't know, there's this sort of obsession with kissing in the last 10, 15 minutes of the movie. It's really <laughs> yeah. weird. You know, like when, they, when she's having her final conversation with uh, Tom Everett Scott, she asks him if uh, his ex, if Charlie Theron was, uh, if she was a good kisser, which is kind of a weird thing to ask. And then at the very end of the movie, he runs after her and he's like, when was the last time that you were truly well kissed or something? It was just, mm. I don't know, these are like people in their early 20s and that seems like a conversation for younger people you know? yeah it does it feels a bit weird also charlie's friend clearly isn't a very good kisser because according to this movie she has terrible terrible teeth <laughs> <laughs> very true very true like we're jumping around a bit but that that those scenes i know they were cut from the theatrical version but the constant dental scenes made me really confused i found them really entertaining though because it's like is their relationship based around him doing dental work on her like is it, it felt like she was bill murray's character in rocky horror not the rocky horror in the little shop of horrors like she does she get off on people drilling her teeth like, yeah maybe I don't know. <laughs> she keeps saying to tom everett scott's character that oh yeah i've got to go to the dentist to get this crown work done and i thought oh so she's making this excuse because she's having an affair with the dentist but then every team every scene she's with the dentist it feels it seems like he really is doing dental work on her so it was like how much work is she getting done like what's going on here this weekend you will not believe what i have to do i'm getting the crown replaced on my number 15 molar it's it's gonna take like all day tomorrow with the dentist all day at a dentist Uh that sounds like he double toothpicks on get it i'm giddy that was one thing I found about this movie in general, though, which I actually really enjoyed, was that it felt like, obviously, Tom Everett Scott's character is our protagonist, but it felt like every other character had their own kind of mini-movie going on that could in itself be its own film. Like, everyone had stuff going on that we were just seeing a little bit of that was really interesting. Like, Liv Tyler, we only see her in a couple of scenes, but she's obviously got a lot going on, you know, with Jimmy that we don't really see, and also, obviously, all of the other members of the band. So, obviously, Jimmy, the singer's stressing out about recording another single. 
one of my favorite cutscenes by far is when the the bass player, whose name I don't think gets a name in the film, does he? When he, he disappears, when he disappears, and they're like, "Where the hell's he gone?" And it just cuts. He, he's just gone to Disneyland with his new friends, like, <laughs> and then he's never seen again. And he's as never well. seen again. Yeah, yeah. You know, this on this rewatch is the first time when I realized that it's not entirely his fault mm. because Tom Hanks doesn't tell them that they have the TV show the next day until later that night after he's already gone off with the with the army guys you know tom everett scott's coming back from the jazz club all drunk and then tom hanks stops him outside the hotel and tells him hey i wanted you to be the first to know you're on tv tomorrow so make sure you gather your people whatever but mm-hmm. by then the, the bass player he's already gone so there's no way that he could have known so it's really not 100 percent his fault that he just took off to disneyland because as far as he knew there yeah, wasn't really. any pressing you know stuff that they had to take care of i just love the idea that he met some marines in some bar and they were like hey let's go to disneyland together yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i mean he's still an idiot but you're right it is a bit irresponsible of tom hanks to just tell the guy who's clearly drunk out of his mind hey hey get the band together because <laughs> in the morning it's like 3 a.m at this point how long have they got to sort this out like yeah yeah and you know that scene is not in the original so in the oh, theatrical really? yeah in the theatrical he mentions that you know he's working on getting the tv stuff uh together and then it doesn't come up again until he calls Tom Everett Scott in the morning. And it's like, where are you? You're supposed to be in TV in a few hours. So if you're watching the theatrical version, you just assume that, oh, they figured this out a long time ago and they're being really responsible. But the extended version, I guess, makes it clear that they just found out the night before. I liked that scene because, we once again, Risa Wilson shows up because she drives Tom Everett Scott back to the hotel and it seems like everyone knows everyone in this film. So she yeah. <laughs> somehow she knows, even though she's just some waitress in a jazz bar, she knows Tom Hanks' character. And she's like, hey, I brought him back for you. And he's like, oh, great, thanks. And then as she, just before she drives off, he kind of gives the biggest wink to her. And it's, <laughs> it, really lasts, it was obviously just like, hey, wife. It was just such a funny little self-indulgent <laughs> moment, but I loved it. <laughs> you are so great. You are. You are a great gal. Really? I'm a great gal? Yup, you are. You are a great gal a gal a great gal imagine that i'm a gal you have to get out of my car now okay marguerite what are you doing with young squire my civic duty your civic duty guy is he yours one of four thank you for his safe return well keep a better eye on him one more martini i'd have me a cabana boy I kind of felt like he came across as like a gay fairy godfather, which I really found entertaining. <laughs> what a description. <laughs> it was because he just came, it seemed like he dropped into their lives and just kind of like helped them all out a little bit. He was more like a, he was more like a fairy godmother, godfather character than he was like a manager to me. Like he, you'd think that a manager of this, in this kind of big LA music scene kind of thing would be very money focused and wouldn't really care about, if it was a darker movie, he would, he would abuse them and he wouldn't really care about their own personal happiness. He'd just be looking at the bottom line. But when the band breaks up, he's kind of like, well, the band's broken up, but, you know, you guys should, you know, you should probably go and be with Faye because she seems like a really special gal. No, Guy, Horace was right about you. You are the smart one. Lenny is the fool. Jimmy is the talent. Faye is... Well, Faye is special, isn't she? And you are the smart one. That's what I think, anyway. Speaking of, like, fairy godfathers, though, the other character we haven't talked about is the, the hotel concierge. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> like, how can you mention okay. the fairy godfather without talking about him? Like, yeah. oh, my God. <laughs> how do you guys feel about that final shot where he looks at the camera? <laughs> I, I really liked it. You know, 
in a way that made it feel like this is just stupid. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> I felt like in any other film, almost any other film, it wouldn't. It would just be like, oh no. But because this film is so charming and just gets by on pure kind of charisma, because it is featherweight. Like, I just there's no conflict particularly. The plot is paper thin. It's not saying anything particularly deep, but it is just so utterly charming that when he breaks the fourth wall and just smiles at the camera, you kind of just chuckle and go, of course, of course he did. Like, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't like break the reality because this film isn't grounded in any kind of reality. So. Yeah, it's it's probably the closest you can get to the actual Tom Hanks looking at the yeah. camera and smiling. It's like yeah. he can't do that, but but it might as well. That's 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 him by extension. Yeah, mm. <laughs> because he just like was he ever off duty? He seemed like no. he was like twenty four seven. He was at that door. Like. Yeah, he was twenty four seven on that. Did he own the hotel as well? No, he was the concierge, I think. Unless he was an like, extremely invested hotel manager. I don't know. But... No, I'm not sure. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he was absolutely always on and never sort of taking it easy. No, no, he was always like... While doing the job, he was always just going above and beyond, shouting at other people, just like, hey, why are you carrying those bags? That's my job! Yeah, well, that was, yeah, the very end, it was, it did play a little bit uncomfortably, where Tom Everett Scott and uh, Liv Tyler, they they have their big kiss moment, and they walk back into the hotel room. And first of all, I was thinking, well, you you still need to check out, guys. But then then also, they kind of go, Tom Everett Scott just kind of goes off, and, oh, hey, Lamar, get my bags, will you? And he kind of goes, that's what I do! I was like... I was like, ooh, okay. Well, actually, the worst part for me is that while they're making out, they make out for a while, he's watching them and he <laughs> smiles. He's he's going like, damn. It's it's really weird, but it's still, you know, it works just because the movie well, the it, I found it weird, has you by then. Um, is that he didn't say, get my bags for me. He said, look after her bags for me. Oh, or something right, like so. that. Just like, so you're going in there like, just for a few minutes? Just just for a quick one, yeah, I before guess. noon. Is, is it <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like, are you going to be back soon? What's going on here? <laughs> it, it was sort of still a bit weird. Lamar, would you mind watching our things? Oh, that's what I do. All right, I am ready for drinking games. We always like to hear that. Um, <laughs> so do you want to go first then? Um, I, I think my first one is one that we all probably have, but I'll just go ahead and say it. Drink every time they play that thing you do. Oh, oh God damn it. Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. That is the ultimate drinking game for this film. Yep. Harry, have you got one? Yeah. Uh, well, mine's kind of the opposite of that. Drink whenever they play anything other than that thing you do. Okay. There oh, are other, that's it good. does happen. There are other songs in this film, definitely. Yeah, there's a lot of like, I think, I believe the soundtrack is all original music, like, because it's all, it's all written to sound like 60s songs. Okay. So my first one is drink every time the characters are unnecessarily horrible to Giovanni Ribisi. <laughs> <laughs> I had a similar one. I wrote, uh, drink every time the movie shits on Giovanni Rubisi. Yeah. Why are they so mean to him? Like, Steve Zahn in particular is a prick to him. He's like, he's like, who are you again? And then when he break, when he, it's when he breaks his arm, because he, he's doing a jumping game and he falls and he breaks his arm. And he's lying in the road, writhing in pain. And Steve Zahn just laughs, <laughs> and goes, that asshole broke his arm. And like, if one of your like close friends reacted that way if you broke your arm, you'd be pretty upset, I feel. Like. He is a very forgiving character. Like, yeah, well, even like even when it's not characters actively doing it to him, the movie itself seems to have this perverse pleasure in torturing him because they the first time they play at the competition, he shows up to the show. And he's just standing among the crowd going like, oh, that's too fast, that's too fast. And then the crowd starts getting into the song and then somebody bumps into him and he just, you know, goes down in pain again. Or then later when you see him like, going up to the store and basically taking the help needed sign and you just feel like, okay, well, this guy just gave up. Now he's yeah. just taking a regular job. Yeah, uh, lovable losers, kind of the role Giovanni Ribisi was born to play, really. It seems to be kind of <laughs> yeah, his type. I guess, I guess. Hey, guys. How's it going? How you doing? 
Oh, Chad. Hey. Hey, Chad. Have you got any more? Drink every time a guy calls himself Spartacus. Oh, that's oh good. good one, good one. <laughs> that was a nice logo. <laughs> what was that about? It's from the film Spartacus. But then at the beginning you have that, that scene. That, which, that doesn't help me. It's a it's a very famous film with uh, Charlton Heston in the sixties. It's got the, the famous scene basically where the character just goes, "I'm Spartacus," and then all of the other characters go, "I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus." Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is how he's showing his age here. But um, <laughs> sorry, I don't know a film from the sixties. Sorry, my, well, my I wasn't alive either. But you know, some of us know our references. Say it. Say it again. I am Spartacus. Oh, yes. You are. Drink for every time a character kisses somebody. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, there are a lot. There's Obviously, there's the ones we talked about, like, all at the end of the film. Yeah. And there's plenty throughout. The one that really stood out for me was when they just finished that gig at, like, a sports ground or something. Mm-hmm. No, it was the gig where they all run off stage. They have to unplug quickly and run off stage. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. And then they've got to run up up this ramp when there's fans just, like, crowding them, very sort of Beatles-type thing. And uh, just the bass player just hangs back a little bit, just have a little snog with one of the fans. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just before Liv Tyler nearly doesn't get in the car with them. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. He does get around uh, that bass player. Yeah. Would the kiss that uh, Steve Zahn gives a cardboard cutout, would that qualify? That would absolutely qualify. <laughs> <laughs> that leads on quite nicely to my next one, which was uh, drink every time Steve Zahn gets shot down. <laughs> <laughs> he just can't catch a break, that guy. Well, well he catches a huge break. He, he does, end. yeah. He does catch a break with the, the working girl. But uh, the scene, there's that, that scene where he's hitting on that girl who wants to know whether Jimmy has a girlfriend. He's like, oh, yeah, he's, he's got a very serious girlfriend. <laughs> And she's like, how about the bass player? He's like, well, I'm single. And she's like, how about the bass player? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Poor Steve Zahn. I don't think, I wouldn't kick him out of bed. I don't think he's that unattractive. But, uh, I guess he's that was fine. Just, yeah, I guess that was just a joke. But... Oh, great. You'd have made it. I'll handle this, don't worry. Hi, I'm Lenny. Hi. What's your name? Chrissy. Yeah, he's got a very pretty girlfriend, doesn't he? Is it serious, do you know? Very serious. I'm single. What about the bass player? He's married. Any more? Um, uh, yeah, I have a drink every time someone geeks out about Del Paxton. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, true. Yeah. Harry, are you done? No, I'm out. done. I'm done. The only one I have, well, I had drink for Beatles references. Oh, that's a good one. I hadn't even yeah. thought about that. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in Liverpool, so I was pretty well primed to pick up on these than most people because I had the Beatles kind of drilled into me as a child. But um, there's lots of kind of subtle ones like the manager being gay and, uh, you know, there's actual references to the Beatles in the film. They mention them a lot in the film. And there's obviously the bit when they're on the TV show where there's the, the monkeys, not the band right. monkeys, but the, the chimpanzees with oh, Beatles yeah. mop tops on being like dubbed as if they were the Beatles. So. Do you know that that was voiced by Tom Hanks? Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is a man of many talents. <laughs> I really love this. Is on the extended version only. There's that moment where the the chimpanzees are walking off stage, and guy just found out that the bass player has oh, disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> he goes by. He's like, "Can that chimp really play the bass?" <laughs> <laughs> it's like, Ooh, that is desperate. There's a lot of really good throwaway jokes in this. Look at us. We're on the telly. Is that where we are? Of course, you twit. Look, there's the Queen of England. I thought we were in America. No, mate. She's called us here. That's how big a fan she is. I was hoping to meet Gina Lola Brigida. Stand in line, chum. 
I'm hoping Troy Chesterfield gives me the leftovers. <laughs> My last one would be uh, drink every time you see a famous cameo or would be famous cameo. Oh, I so, think Yeah, I have uh, Brian Cranston, Kevin Pollock, Charlie Seren, who wasn't famous at the time, uh, mm-hmm. Rita Wilson, uh, Giovanni Ribisi, because I, I think that he wasn't that big back then. No. Uh, Colin Hanks and then Clint Howard, the, the DJ. Mm-hmm. So that's what I had was just drink every time Tom Everett Scott pulls a weird face. Mm-hmm. He's very expressive in his facial expression. Yeah, he, re- he did some really good faces. Actually. He did, yeah. He's yeah. <laughs> very entertaining. Put him and Amelia, not Amelia Clark. Lily, Amelia Clark. Yeah, put him, Tom Everett Scott and Amelia Clark in a movie together, and it's mm. just going to be a, a face off. Yeah. Call it face off. <laughs> Remake face off. <laughs> cool. Okay, so before we get to some sequels, I guess we should talk about uh, Patreon. That's what we do. That's what we do. This is our uh, moment to plug ourselves. So we are now available on Patreon for people who are big fans of the show, of which Julio is one. So thank you very much, Julio, for being a supporter on Patreon. It really means a lot to us. It's my pleasure. Cool. So yeah, if you do uh, go to patreon.com forward slash beyond the box set, you'll find our page where we offer a range of incentives for uh, people who want to hear a little bit more about the show and learn a little bit more about us. Uh, We have a pay-as-you-feel tiered system, which means you can pay as much or as little as you like and you get access to all the same content. So we do... What do we do, Harry? What what incentives do we offer? Well, we have a bonus show called Beyond Beyond the Box Set where we review cinema-released movies. Mm -hmm. Current movies, I should say. Current cinema releases. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's better. We also, as we're doing this week, every month we will take one podcast and we will invite them to guest on our show. Well, one Patreon. They don't have to be podcasters. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's it's so happened so far. All our patrons have also been podcasters, which is great. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if you you would like to come and be on a guest on the show, you can choose a film. And yeah, once a month, one of our patrons will... One of our patrons from Patreon, that always confuses me, will join us. And yeah, we've had a few on now. It's always been great. So we'll as, do that. As another feature, any of our patrons can give us their name and any details they'd like, made up or otherwise. And we will write, write you into one of our sequels as a character mm-hmm. in said film. Immortality. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as a final thing that we offer, we once a month will also give a 30 second advert slot to anything that you want to promote. Mm-hmm. This could be your own podcast, it could be a business that you run, it could be anything. Uh, I'm just looking around John's apartment to see what's uh, what's advertisable. <laughs> uh, an iron. Uh, a lamp. Yeah. Um, you could advertise your couch. You can advertise <laughs> the world's largest stereo. What What is that, John? That's That's been in the corner for years. I know. I, it's I, like I, the size of a car. I do have a very large old school stereo <laughs> system that uh, I never play anymore, but I don't have the heart to throw it away. Well, it's made by Sony, so uh, Sony, you, you need to become patrons now. True, yeah, I guess we've now <laughs> inadvertently plugged them. Hey, Drew, what do you do every other Wednesday? Specifically every other Wednesday, I watch a movie, Nathan. Oh my gosh, I talk about movies every other Wednesday. Oh my gosh, if we take my movie watching and you're talking about movies... We can make a podcast! We can make a podcast, that'd be great! But what would we call it? I don't know, I mean, I get the feels for the movies. And I get the reels part of it. Man, if we combine the two, we could have... The Real Feels Podcast. I love it. Okay, you know what? We're going to find us on iTunes and Podbean. It's going to be great. Every other Wednesday. We're going to be the realist. The feelist. Right, should we get some sequels? Yes, let's do it. So, Julia, would you like to go first? or? So you guys did one together, right? Yes, we've done a joint one. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. All right. So mine, I kind of underestimated how long it was going to take me and overestimated my writing speed. And uh, <laughs> so what I think that the way it looks now as I'm looking at it, it's like it has like a lot of detail at the beginning. And then the closer I get to the end, 
which was the closer I got to the time where we had to record, I was like, fuck <laughs> it, this happens and then this happens and then this happens. So, oh, Julio, you, you have no idea. That never happens to us. <laughs> never happens. Oh, never man. happens. <laughs> Can't relate to that at all. <laughs> First five minutes of the movie take up like three sides of A4 and then it's like, oh, uh, then he'll die at the end or whatever. <laughs> then it's the Truman Show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, mine is called that thing you did oh good it takes place in 2014 which is exactly 50 years since the events of the movie so in the movie the wonders released that thing you do in 1964 and they're famous for like i don't know you know four months or so and then they disappear Mm -hmm. and uh the thing is and by 2014 of course it's a different kind of culture and you have the internet and social media and i guess the tagline if i had to give a tagline would be you know can anything stay truly forgotten is the whole point of the story <laughs> is that they're going to come back in a way, which is, I think, what you'd expect. And I was wondering if you guys were going to go this way, because the first impulse is to do a, a returning tour of the wonders. And I didn't quite go that way, but uh, we'll see. So we open with a, with a really poor recording of the wonders uh, performance at the Hollywood television showcase. You know, it's just it looks like VHS bad where the music is you can barely hear it the images are all distorted and uh, and there's somebody watching that tape and they're kind of annoyed and it's like is this the best we have and there's some technicians around them and they're like yeah so he's like okay well fine this will do but we can always replace the audio with something better and then you pull back and we see that it's Colin Hanks okay. so in this movie he's playing Mr. White's son so he's okay. his father's son the role he was born to play yep yeah and he is the current president of Playtown Records so somebody asked him if he wants to put the clip on the webpage, and he's like, not yet. I need to talk to them first. And uh, somebody in the office is like, okay, well, we should still have James Mattingly's contact info. That's Jimmy. And Colin Hanks, his name is Logan, Logan White. He's like, uh, no, no, no. I think I need to talk to somebody else first. And then on the monitor, we see the distorted image of Guy, you know, playing drums and in, in, in that very famous show they did. So now we cut to 2014 Guy. And my idea is that we're just going to use the same actors. They're just going to have old age makeup. And and, sure, sure. And, yeah. and hopefully we have like a good old age makeup person, not th- so it looks decent. It doesn't look like I don't know if you guys ever watch uh, Jay Edgar, the Clint Eastwood movie about the FBI <laughs> director. But that you know that has Leonardo DiCaprio and uh, Army Hammer, and they look terrible when they're supposed to be <laughs> old people. So not like that. We're gonna we're gonna go with just less caked on makeup and more just maybe accentuating the lines and maybe messing with the hair. But yeah, same actors all coming back who, you know, 50 years later. So that means that if we're assuming that they're in the early 20s in the movie, then they're in the early 70s now. So you see Tom Everett Scott in his 70s. He looks healthy. Instead of wearing shades, you know, now he's just wearing bifocals. <laughs> he's, uh, he, he's doing the dishes and he can listen uh, from the living room. He's, he can hear uh, his grandkids playing some weird, like, screamo song on the latest rock band. And he's just kind of trying to keep it together, but he finally can't take it anymore. He goes out there and pretty gently, he's like, can you guys turn it down a little? And the kids were teenagers, 14, 13, 15. They're like, well, it's not as fun if it's not loud. You know, this is rock and roll, grandpa. And he's like, no, it isn't. And he walks away. You know, he's just, he's turning to an old man. So he goes out the front yard where Faye is doing some gardening. They're still together. He asks her if she wants to trade. She'll finish the dishes and he'll finish the yard. And she asks if the kids are still playing the game. He's like, yeah. And she's like, okay, then I'm staying out here. And they're just kind of talking, and he's complaining about that kind of music that they listen to. And Faye's like, well, you could show them good stuff. And he's like, I've tried. They're not interested. And she's like, you should try harder. And he just kind of grumbles because, you know, he knows what she means, but he doesn't want to go there. So they're interrupted by the rival of Colin Hanks, introduces himself as Logan White. He's Andy White's son. 
and Faye makes a connection. It's like, Mr. White? Platon, Mr. White? And Logan's like, yep. And it's like, you guys have a minute? So he sets up this sort of presentation in Guy's home office. He has a laptop and, you know, he's getting it ready. And he starts telling kind of like the story of what happened to Platon Records since, since their wonders disappeared. He tells him about how, like, they were doing uh, really well for a while, but then they almost went under during the 80s because they failed to adapt to the times. His dad was actually, he rose up to be president of the company, which is something that you see, I think, uh, on the liner notes of the soundtrack. But then his dad, uh, Andy White, died in a car accident, and the company's new president took it a new direction during the 90s, and it just kind of focused on on smaller acts, more like a, turning it into an indie label instead of the usual big bands touring that they mm-hmm. had before. And they kind of like, they barely get by, so you know, with that kind of approach. But then in the 2000s, Logan acquired the company and took over his father's old position. And now he's been working for 14 years to just bring Playton Records to what it used to be. Because they used to be huge ones. They had a galaxy of stars. And, you know, guys like, yeah, I remember. And Logan's like, you know, I think that it's a mistake to ignore our past. We, you know, we even look like we're ashamed of it. Instead, you know, we should just embrace it and and so they want to celebrate their history and then he plays them a video on his computer and it's just a collection of snippets of old concert footage and interviews uh, all with the past stars from their catalog and uh, you know guy and Faye just kind of feel what's coming and of course eventually we see footage of jimmy and lenny and the bass player and guy all goofing off giving interviews and then playing that thing you do and you know we see the video from the very beginning where you know it's all messed up but you can recognize it's them and Logan says, yeah, I'm working on getting a better copy. But it's like, do you guys know that it's been 50 years since the release of that thing you do? And Guy is mm-hmm. just kind of trying to act unimpressed. And he's like, well, what exactly are you trying to sell here? Do you need me to autograph some old records? Do you need me to do an interview? And Colin Hanks is like, well, I want to get the band back together. I want the Wonders to play at our big Playtone retro extravaganza at the end of the month. We're doing this thing where, you know, we're just bringing bands to cover the, the old hits, bringing the, the bands that are still together, they're really old, they're coming in to just play this one big show. And Guy just laughs. He's like, that's that's insane. And Colin Hanks is like, no, no, I want you guys to be the main act. And Guy is like, well, why would you want us to be? We're a one-hit wonder band. How desperate are you? And Logan is like, well, for one, you're the only band who still has all the original members alive. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, Ooh, the hospital. And, and the guy is like, well, that's flattering. Uh, <laughs> and uh, Logan is like, well, it gives you a responsibility. You're the survivors. You have to represent your era. You need to reward your old fans, create new fans. And guy is not buying it. But, you know, Logan just keeps going. It's like, you need, you don't sell yourself short. You are still the fastest rising single in the history of Playtown. And that's for a reason. Your, your music was great. But Guy, you know, refuses. He's like, this is all very flattering, but I just don't play anymore. And even if I did and you could wrangle everyone else together, I don't think we'd play well anymore. I was like, do your research. I mean, find out why the Wonders never recorded a new album. And Colin Hanks is like, I know what happened. I know about Mattingly. And, but Guy's like, well, that's all you need to know. And then he just kind of like ushers him out and just kicks him out of the house. But Faye stays behind with Logan and, you know, just apologizes to him because Guy had been a little rude. And... Uh, Logan tells her he's pretty sure he can get Jimmy to play, but Faye tells him that she doesn't think that matter. And then Logan gives her a flash drive, and she's like, well, anyway, you should have this, because this is, you know, the history of your band. So later that night, they're in bed, and Faye's on her laptop, and she's going through the files on the flash drive, and there's pictures and videos of, you know, just their, their brief history with Playtone and the band. And she seems to be really into it, but Guy isn't. He's just kind of annoyed. He's like, just stop it. And she tells him that she hopes that he didn't turn the whole thing down because of her. And she's like, I'm a big girl. I'm like in my 70s. I can handle my old ex-boyfriend 
being around. I can certainly handle him better now than I did 50 years ago. And Guy says, well, maybe I can't handle him. Maybe I just don't want to put up with his attitude. And Faye just kind of looks at him and she's like, is that really it? And Guy just grumbles, turns around, turns his lamp off, asks her, she asks her, asks her to at least lower the volume. And Faye does that, but, you know, she keeps watching the videos. And then you see an interview where uh, Lenny is goofing off Steve Zahn. He's making faces behind Jimmy being just Lenny. And so we close up on Lenny's face in the video, and then we cut to present-day Lenny. So Steve Zahn in old-age makeup. And he's driving a convertible with the top down, like he said he would last time we saw him. Speeding down the highway, talking on the phone. And uh, he's basically asking his assistant to book him a flight to Washington, D.C., which is where, where Faye and Guy live. And it's like, ASAP, also book me a hotel, send a bouquet of flowers to Faye Patterson. And then we cut to Guy, who's at the mall watching over his grandkids as they're, like, playing a dear arcade game. And he just hears somebody scream. It's like, Skitch, Patterson. And he turns, and, you know, there's, there's Steve Zahn, there's Lenny. And, you know, he's lost some hair. He, he looks, obviously, you know, he's in his 70s. But you can still tell, like, he has that energy that he used to have. So he just kind of starts giving Guy a hard time for turning down the offer from, from White Jr. And he's like, I, I, I can't believe that I even I had to hear this from Faye. You wouldn't even tell me. Guy doesn't want to talk about it, and Lenny's just relentless again, like white before him. So Guy just kind of shoes away his grandkids. He's like, I don't want you hearing this. And Lenny's like, we need to do this. And when Guy won't budge, then Lenny tells him, listen, I could use the money. And Guy's like, well, I thought you were doing fine with your casinos. Because, you know, if you remember in the end credits, it says that, yeah, he may be single, but he became like a successful casino owner in Vegas. And Steve Zahn is like, no, not really. It's kind of all like a big front. I actually, I made the mistake of getting involved with some shady people. And Guy's like, again? And he's like, well, you know, I, I just, trust me, I could really use the money. And Guy's like, okay, how much money? I can just help you. And Lenny's like, I'm not going to take your money, but I'll take the money from Playtone. So let's just do this. And then Lenny, because he knows Guy probably, you know, as well or almost as well as Faye because they went way back. He's like, tell me the truth. Why aren't you doing this? And he's like, I know it's not Jimmy. And so the guy tells him, he's like, you know, I've just worked too hard and too long to just bury that time in my life. I mean, it was great. It was among the best times ever, but then it just hurt so much when it ended that I just, I've never played again since. And I've always wondered if I should have. And now I'm in my 70s and it's not the right time to go back and, and kind of like try to choose the other path. So it's like, I'm done. And Lenny tells him, listen, 70s and you're 50. Let's just pretend you're having like a three quarters life crisis. And... and just <laughs> <laughs> don't you want your, your grandkids to see you play? And it's like, no. And Lenny's like, well, they should. And Guy kind of glances at the teenagers are playing, you know, their arcade games. And he kind of has a moment where, like, maybe I should. And then Lady tells him, listen, I already called Logan White. He's sending a plane to pick us up. He's going to take us to L.A. He's going to give us a, another hard pitch. So he goes. And now we're at the Playtone offices. And Logan is just thrilled that Guy changed his mind. And Guy's like, well, I might change it back, depending on how Jimmy comes about this. And Logan nods, and then he's like, well, you know, I might have overestimated my persuasive abilities when it came to Jimmy. He's like, oh, he doesn't want to do it. He's like, well, he'll do it, but he just wants to do it with a different band. He wants to just bring a couple of his old bandmates from the Hertzman because they're still in the biz. And Guy's like, okay, well, that's fine. He can do that, and I'll just go home. But Logan doesn't want that. He wants it to be special. I mean, he, he doesn't want a cover band doing Wonder songs. And Guy mm. tells him, well, there's not much we can do. I mean, if he doesn't want to do it, it's not as if Jimmy's going to react positively if I show up to ask him. And Logan's like, well, he might, you know, if you show up and you're kind of apologetic about the whole thing. And Guy blows up. He's like, apologize for what? I didn't do anything wrong. But Lenny, it's like, we'll go. It's like, I'll do the talking. You just need to show up there. It's like, don't you want to see what Jimmy looks like 50 years later? <laughs> and Guy's <laughs> like, no. And Steve's like, no, it'll be fun. So and we cut to like a bottle smashing against the wall. 
and then we see Jimmy, like all Jimmy, he's half drunk. He's like yelling at Guy and, and, and Lenny. He's telling them that Playtone can go to hell. And Guy's like, yeah, you're right. This is fun. And Lenny, <laughs> Lenny's trying to calm Jimmy down. He's like, listen, it's a new company now. It's Mr. White's son. It's a new leader that cares for the artists. And Jimmy doesn't care. He's like, I made the mistake twice. I trusted Playtone and they only care for themselves. They screwed me over. They made a lot of money. I made them a lot of money. And then they wouldn't stand behind me. And they wouldn't even give me my master's when I left. They hide behind their contracts and all that. So then Guy's like, okay, then why did you even say that you were going to do it with other band members? And he's like, I just wanted to piss him off. I was going to make them jump through loops. I was never going to do it anyway. I didn't think that they were going to be so dumb to try to use you to convince me. And now, like, he looks so angry and he's just so bitter that Lenny doesn't even know what to say. So Guy's like, all right, well, we're just going to go. He's like, sorry, we wasted your time and hours. And as they're walking away, Jimmy asks Guy to stay. And Lenny kind of gives Guy a look. It's like, okay, well, this might be our chance. Don't blow it. So once they're by themselves... Jimmy asks Guy about Faye. He's like, how is Faye doing? And Guy gets all tense. And he's like, she's okay. And Jimmy, you know, he's really drunk. And he starts kind of stammering through this sort of apology, like really clumsily. And he just asks Guy to pass it on, to say that he's sorry for the way he handled everything way back then. And Guy's like, you know, you could just apologize in person or call her or whatever. But Jimmy's like, no, that, that would be uncomfortable for everybody involved. Can you just let her know? And then he asks him if he wants a drink. And Guy's like, well, you know, Lenny's waiting. And Jimmy's like, ah, screw Lenny. And he just pours Guy a drink. And then they start drinking. And as they're drinking, Jimmy starts rambling on about his career, the ups and downs, all the regrets. And he comes back to the wonders. And he's like, you know, I made it gold three times with the Hertzman, but I feel like I never escaped the shadow of the wonders. And then Guy goes like, well, I think you mean the Oneaters. And then, <laughs> and then they kind of smile, they laugh. And then we cut to, you know, the office of the new Mr. White. And then we find out that, okay, so Guy has cut this deal with Jimmy because he felt bad for him after this whole thing. And he's like, okay. He tells White that they're going to do the show, but only if Jimmy gets his music back, all the masters that he recorded back, you know, when he was with the Hertzman, with the label. And Logan White, he's like, sure, I don't care. Yeah, I think that that's, that's only fair. I just want you guys for the show. It's great. It's great. Now we have another problem, though. And he's like, what? What is it? It's like, well, while you guys were talking, I, I went and I recruited the last, the last member of our band. And so they walk into the recording area and they find the old bass player. And he looks pretty bad. Like he's in pretty bad shape. And I don't know if you guys remember, but you know, he actually went to war. He got wounded twice and he got like a medal or oh, something. Yeah. So he, he doesn't look like he can actually perform. He's missing a leg. He has like a, a, a metal leg, like uh, Lieutenant Dan had him. <laughs> I was thinking, is he Lieutenant yeah. Dan? That'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Like really bit in a wheelchair, really bitter. Like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's still kind of, you know, he's he looks like a nice guy, but he's like, guys, I, I really can't. Like, if you look at me, you know, my arms are all messed up. I can't, I can't just, I don't have the energy to do it, to do like a whole show. And Jimmy is just like, well, you know what? He didn't even play with us when we were on TV. So like, who cares? We just, just called the Wolfman, the guy that, you know, stepped <laughs> in for him. And uh, Logan White's like, ah, uh, yeah, the Wolfman dead. He, he overdosed 20 years ago. <laughs> That's not an option. But even he's like, I agree that we need a replacement, but we still need the original bass player on the show. He needs to pass the torch. So, you know, we can just have him on stage and then he just hands over the bass to the new bassist. And, and at least that way, there's, there's this sense of closure, you know? It's like we have all this information from way back then. And the one thing people didn't like about that performance at the Hollywood TV show was that you were missing one of your members, that you got a replacement. You know, now we have the internet. We have the potential to just gather all the data and, and make choices according to it. So let's do it right. And then Guy has an idea. He's like, okay, well, I think I have a replacement. And so he calls his sister and he asks her, I was like, is your husband there? 
and then we cut to you know just the, the big festival and then we find the replacement that he's called is chad giovanni Rivisi, who oh you know he, he became he literally became part of the family he married guy's sister and it turns out that this entire time he's been learning how to play bass he's like i knew it would come in handy someday i was like i knew i could never be the drummer <laughs> that you were but i could definitely be a better bass player than you know ethan embry <laughs> so i'll be honored to be a part of the wonders again so they're ready. And now we go into that montage where we see them rehearse and we see them, you know, just slowly get back into the tunes that they, they used to play. So now we're at the night of the show and they're almost ready. There are people playing and then Guy has a panic attack when he sees that Faye has brought the entire family. I mean, if you remember, the end credits say that they had four kids and those kids yeah. are mm-hmm. now, you know, in their 40s. And those kids, you know... <laughs> have kids so that's how they have grandkids and then plus all the other fans and it finally hit him again what he's managed to push down through this entire process it's just that it's really scary you know he's in his 70s mm-hmm. and he's meeting his fans again he hasn't played live music again ever since since the wonders broke up and so he tries to run away but then Faye, who knows her husband she catches him and she just talks him down talks him down the edge you know, she's like, you're going to regret it if you don't do this. And Guy calms down. He comes back into backstage. And when he comes back, he finds out that stupid Chad has broken his arm again. He... <laughs> <laughs> Poor Chad. <laughs> Can't catch a break. Yeah. Oh. He, was, he was just messing around and, and he fell and he broke his arm. And now they're like, well, what same are we Same arm or do? different arm? Same arm. Let's say it's the same arm. That's, this is it's done. <laughs> that arm is going to be gone. <laughs> And so the bass player, he's like, you know what? I'll do it. And they're like, but you can't play. It's like, I can manage. Let's just, let's not do an encore. Let's just play the big hits and then get out of here. And so he does. And they play perfectly. And it's just transmitted everywhere. You know, with this, the internet is just live streamed everywhere. And it's a huge success. And by the end of it, they kind of look at each other and like, well, you know, maybe we could do this more than once in the future. And that's kind of it. Yeah. That's really nice. I was I was thinking throughout that, like, oh, it's so nice that Chad gets a redemption at the end, but then nope, it's, it still all falls apart for him. I could not Can't resist the cheap joke of having him break his arm. <laughs> well, I guess when you're in his 70s, it's easily done, you know, just a little fall and then something. <laughs> Poor Chad. Uh, no, I thought that was really good. Yeah, I like that idea of having them back as like a... And I didn't think of that. Like we had a lot of, I, did, I put this out onto, we'll get to our listener submissions at the end, and a lot of people did suggest that kind of, you know, 20 years in the future, but they were more like in the 80s kind of idea, whereas the idea that actually the band, if it was to the present day, they'd all be in their 70s. That's a really interesting idea. So Yeah, I kind of like, because that was my first thought too, the 80s. And then I was like, I Mm. don't really, I, it just seems like it would be so much harder to set everything up in the 80s. But if I set it in current day, then we can play a little Mm. bit more with like current technology. And and I actually like the idea that they're all in their 70s. You don't see that much, you know, that kind of movie where really old people are doing Mm. the things that we see them do when they're young. So. Yeah, it reminded me, there is a film from about 1998 it's, uh, called Still Crazy. It's got uh, Billy Connolly and uh, Timothy Spall and Bill Nye from Love Actually in mm-hmm. it. They play like an old rock band that gets back together, but they are all like, you know, in their 60s. And so it reminded me a lot of that. So, yeah, I think that could be a very workable, very kind of realistic sequel to that thing you do. So, yeah, excellent. I am Spartacus! Of course, we get to our one then, Harry. Sure thing. Okay. So... Julio, have you seen the film Love Actually? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so that is you... the first episode of your podcast I listened to. Oh, really? Oh, lovely. Yeah, mm. yeah. It was really weird because it's kind of a very different episode from most of your other ones. So the dynamic that you guys have in that episode 
really it really <laughs> well, threw because me we off. hate each other <laughs> right it's just it's just john demolishing the movie and you know harry's just trying to d- defend it a little bit but i was like wow it's harry's that- just trying not to cry <laughs> Yeah, so I thought that maybe that's what the dynamic was, that, you know, you guys would take turns <laughs> destroying each other's movies. No, no, no. I, I have sin- I have thought that that might be a good idea for a podcast, but I just don't know how I could do it. Um. <laughs> You're not quite as mean-spirited as I am, so I don't know if you could, like, bi-weekly find it in yourself to destroy me. I'm not but sure. But also, I don't know if I could take it bi-weekly either. True, yeah. <laughs> it might just ruin our friendship. Like, once a year we can do that kind of episode, but other than that, it might destroy our friendship. It was a tough week. Okay, but, so, I guess you've seen that actually then. So... Um, do you remember Bill Nye was playing a rock star? Right. And he had a manager called Joe? Yes. Well, he is going to be the main character of our film. Mm-hmm. Like that um, actual we, character? Yes, that actual character. And so we're calling it That Thing You Manage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And this is kind of, uh, the basis of this is the idea that, kind of what I mentioned earlier, how Tom Hanks in the original film, is he's kind of like a fairy godfather. Where he just He kind of pops into their lives and kind of takes them up to the stars and then kind of disappears quite gracefully when the moment's passed. So we kind of thought, well, that might be an interesting kind of dynamic to see how a manager might do that in other kind of contexts. And obviously the Bill Nye, uh, the, not the Bill Nye, the Bill Nye's manager, Joe, does that, is a very benevolent manager in Love Actually 2. He's kind of almost like a long-suffering friend. Yeah, he, put, um, he puts and, up with a lot in that movie. Yeah. And another thing we reference in this, have you ever seen the TV show Quantum Leap? Yes, yeah. Yes, so you know how in that thing, Scott Bakula's character, he kind of jumps around different time frames, jumping into different bodies and into different circumstances, different time periods, etc. Right. Helping people out. And then when he's done, he kind of moves on to the next thing. So that's kind of some of the influences we had with um, with this sequel, yeah. which I'll hand over to Harry now to introduce. Okay, so it's the world of love, actually. You know, what, 10, 15 years later, whatever it is. I don't, I don't know, we'll care. Joe is the manager of Bill Nye's character, who was called Bill, I believe. Oh, wow, that's, a, that's convenient. a real stretch for Bill Nye. <laughs> <laughs> and so one day, the two of them have a fight in Bill's London house, which results in Bill firing Joe. Joe walks off into the city to get drunk by himself and gets absolutely plastered and eventually goes back to his own place where he passes out in a bed. The next day, he is extremely hungover, but does remember the fight and getting fired. So he walks out of his apartment to make his way over to Joe's to try and get his job back on the way there he is completely oblivious of everything that's going on around him because he's very hungover because he's very hungover yes there is currently a massive battle going on in the sky between a load of flying robots some aliens and a stupidly dressed man with a young female sidekick all right (laughs) this is going to come back around to that thing you do it's it's working its way around (laughs) i'm gonna try to not figure out i'm just gonna let you take me on the ride yeah, just enjoy sure. the journey, enjoy the journey. Yeah. On Joe's travels, he eventually needs the toilet, as some of us do. I'm on, after a nice hour. Yeah, after a, hmm. <laughs> and he walks into what he thinks is a small blue public toilet on a street corner, of which inside he cannot find a urinal, and so decides to take a break and lean against this bit in the middle. He passes out, falling to the floor, while accidentally pressing loads of buttons. <laughs> the console lights up, extremely bright, and a large burst of energy transfers from it to him. We cut to black. Mm-hmm. Joe wakes up in a strange hotel room feeling once again very hungover he wanders into the bathroom to splash some water on his face as people always do in films but never in real life and he's he's shocked to discover when he looks into the mirror that he now is in a different body uh, and that body for this part of the film is going to be played by the actor Samuel L. Jackson Okay. so we're going to get a lot of stars in this so they're all going to play these small roles <laughs> so it's not the actor Samuel L. Jackson it's just Samuel L. Jackson playing a character so he staggers out of the hotel he's very confused he doesn't know where he is and a large camper van pulls up 
And out of the camper van jumps uh, the character Horace, who was in the original That Thing You Do movie. He was the original manager of the band before right. he kind of handed over to Tom Hanks, the older guy mm-hmm. who gets them on the radio. So he jumps out of this camper van that he has and he says, get in. So Joe jumps in and he's kind of he asks what's going on. And Horace explains that due to a complicated uh, sci-fi mix-up that we're not going to get into particularly, he's been sent into a time travel loop, which is tied to his destiny, which has always been as a band manager to help up-and-coming pop singers to reach the top of the charts. So the only way for him to get home is to help at least one of these singers to become a genuine superstar. So it's like Quantum Leap, basically. He's trapped in a time travel kind of loop where he's Uh constantly going to be jumping to different periods in pop history. And his mission is just to help these singers to have a hit. And then once he's done that, he can move on to the next one. Eventually, he'll leap home. So it's really a complete Quantum Leap ripoff. So <laughs> Joe's still very, very confused. Like, music focused, obviously. Um, yeah, exactly. If, if Quantum Leap was about was set in the music, in the record industry, basically. So Joe's still very confused, but he asks. So he asks, "Well, where are we going first? And Horace explains. Horace is going to be. If you remember Quantum Leap, Scott Bakula's character had kind of a holographic um, assistant who would always explain what the mission was at the beginning of the episode uh, and kind right. of guide him through yeah, it. Yeah, he's he's going to so be the Dean Stockwell of uh, of your movie. Yes, it was Dean Stockwell. So we felt like Horace from the original movie, the older manager, can play the Dean Stockwell role, basically. Horace explains that he's going to introduce Joe to a hot up-and-coming German jazz singer who goes by the name of Lou Bega. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they arrive at the studio where Bega is working on his latest track, which is a slow and depressing jazz number <laughs> about, about his past struggles with drug addiction. With lyrics including, a little bit of methadone in my life, a little bit of cocaine, I'm up till five, a little bit of heroin in the sun, a little bit of ketamine and I'm done. (laughs) Joe steps into the recording booth and says, Lou, baby, the song has potential, but no one's going to buy this depressing unless you lose some weight and put on a beehive. (laughs) How about doing it up with an up-tempo swing and substituting the drugs for girls' names? So Lou's a little bit sceptical, but he agrees to go along with it. And the retitled song Mambo Number no. 5 soon becomes a global smash hit. <laughs> and uh, Joe manages him through several glorious months of touring the world, much like he does with The Wonders, until the novelty obviously begins to wear off and the record company demands a follow-up single. <laughs> so, Lou, so Lou turns to Joe and says, well, I've got nothing, how about you? And Joe shrugs. <laughs> and suddenly he's pulled back into the time vortex. <laughs> Oh god! I I actually remember the follow up. I don't know if you guys ever saw it. Like I remember it, it being on MTV for like maybe a week, and then the world decided that they did not care for anything else from Lou Bega. We looked it up while we were writing this, and oh my god, it, it's the exact same song. <laughs> it's, apart from instead of girls' names, it's just places. It's sitting, yeah, I've got a girl in Paris, a, a girl in Rome. Yes, I even got yeah. a girl in the Vatican Dome. <laughs> <laughs> How could it fail? How could it fail? Awful. Yeah. Anyway, Harry, uh. continue. So he now comes to in the early 90s in LA in an opulently decorated bedroom. He rushes to the mirror, expecting not to look like himself. Um, this time the reflection shows an athletic middle-aged businesswoman who's going to be played by Sharon Stone. She gets a call on her massive early 90s cell phone and Horace tells her to meet him outside. But once again, he speeds her off to a meeting in his camper van. And this time the meeting is with a struggling early 90s pop rock duo who go by the name of the Rembrandts. I don't know the Rembrandts. Okay, you you'll might, know them. You'll, you'll pick them. it up. You pick it up. Okay. So they've written they've written an exceedingly catchy tune called "I'll Be There for You," <laughs> but for some reason they just can't get it played on the radio because this is the early nineties and it's the height of the grunge era and these kind of sunny pop songs are really out of fashion. So Sharon snaps her fingers and says, "If we can't get this record on the radio, let's put it on TV." 
She puts in a call to NBC and asks if they have any up-and-coming TV pilots that are in need of a theme tune. Uh, Cut to some months later, and I'll Be There For You is the theme tune to the most popular TV sitcom of the decade, and, oh, well, arguably all time, let's be honest. Friends! Don't give it away. <laughs> There's some mystery. So are they, are they are they the Rembrandts in real life? Is that the name of the band? That's the name of the band who recorded the song I'll Be There For You, which is the theme from Friends, yes. Yeah. That's, that's so so meta-ironic that I wouldn't know the name of the band, but I would know the song. Yeah. Well, there you go. <laughs> You're proving the point. Yeah, like. The band are a huge success, but unfortunately, the overexposure of the song overshadows them, and nobody's interested in hearing any of the other records. After their next single fails to chart, they acrimoniously break up, and Sharon Stone finds herself back in the time vortex. So, Joe, the manager, wakes up this time in the 1980s at a comedy gig, headlined by a fast-talking African-American comedian. Uh, During the act, the comedian does some musical skits, and Joe notices that he actually has a pretty decent singing voice. So after the show, he's taken backstage and introduced to the comic, who announces that he has aspirations to launch a musical career. So they book a studio, and the comic starts performing wacky musical sketches, none of which sound like hits. So Joe steps in and says, Eddie, baby, everybody knows you're a funny guy, but if you want a hit record, maybe just dial it back a bit and do a generic song about partying. So the song Party All The Time by Eddie Murphy (laughs) becomes a huge hit, and the comedian's ego goes out of control. He soon becomes unbearably high maintenance, and despite Joe's best efforts, he ends up firing him, announcing that he's bored of music and now wants to be a movie star. Once again, Joe is sucked back in time. So he comes to in a 1970s brothel where he's surrounded by four four sex workers. I guess is the politically correct term these days. He's kind of unfazed by this point. He's kind of used to these strange time jumps. So uh, he wanders into the bathroom to check out his face. And in this, in this period, he's going to be played by Bill Murray. Because we thought Bill Murray would be a good character to wake up in the middle of a, a fivesome, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> and not be phased by it. So Horace collects him and drives him down to the recording studio to meet his latest singer, a talented R&B singer called Gloria Gaynor. Mm. Gloria has recorded a powerful breakup anthem called I Will Survive. Everybody thinks the record has potential, but they just can't find a market for it. Radio is just playing Fleetwood Mac and other rock and blues groups. They're baffled as to how to break the record with the public. So Joe snaps his fingers and says, Gloria, baby, I know just who's going to love this record. And we cut to a 70s gay disco (laughs) where I Will Survive where I Will Survive quickly becomes a dance floor sensation and it shoots to the top of the charts and Gloria becomes known as the Queen of Disco. Sadly, just a few months later, there's a huge public backlash known as the Disco Sucks movement in which disco records are burned in the streets and radio refuses to play them, effectively ending Gloria's career and sending Joe once again into the time vortex. He wakes up in 1964 where he is introduced to a wide-eyed young boy band called The Wonders. We all know what happens here. (laughs) So, after their unfortunate breakup, Joe is sent back to the 1950s, where he wakes up as Gary Sinise. He wakes up outside the entrance to a Memphis court venue. He says to Horace, This is useless. I just can't seem to make it work. I'm going to be trapped in this time loop forever. And Horace says, Keep the faith, Joe. Just see this guy. This This one might be different. I've got a good feeling about this one. So Joe goes into the Memphis concert venue where he sees a charismatic, dark-haired young country singer with a very distinctive vocal tone and very flexible hips. After the gig, he goes backstage to introduce himself again and compliments the singer, saying, Baby, I think you've got real potential. And the singer replies, Oh, well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> and Joe smiles directly at camera and we cut to credits. And that's the end of That Thing You Manage. That's pretty awesome. How much research do you guys have to put in? I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to pop music, so not as much as you'd think. So. Okay. 
Yeah, because to me, it just sounded like, oh my God, that's, I, mean, I recognize everything, but it was that fear of, uh, I might not recognize this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of this was just going through, uh, just t- t- typing in top one hit wonders of the 70s, and then just going through nice. just like BuzzFeed's top 100 one hit wonders or whatever. But uh, yeah, we got there. You always knew that you were going to end on Elvis? We had to end it in the 50s, because there's not really any pop stars before the 50s. Elvis was the first real pop and rock sensation. So, yeah, I mean, it might be one of those things that works better as a TV show if it was serialized or it just could go on forever. But we thought we had, if we we're going to have like an end point. We thought we'd end with Elvis because that's the obvious one because he, he is like the original pop star, really. So, yeah, so, yeah that was uh, that thing you manage. Yeah, I like it. Very, very different from anything I considered. <laughs> Good. <Thank you. laughs> cool. So uh, if that's that, should we get to some listener submissions? Better bloody ad. Okay, so we had loads for this, actually. Did we? Oh, good. We had a lot of reactions to this one, especially on Facebook. It really went down well. There's definitely a lot of people who have fond memories of this. So I'll read through some of my favourites right now. See, the thing I don't like about cult films is that they very often come up in, in our podcast. You'll pick a cult film and then I'll be like, I've never heard of that film. Okay, I'll just give it my best shot. And then it comes to next week everybody's heard of this film. And I'm like, where, where have I been? Where have I missed this film? Yeah, if you're not in the cult, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, let me pick some of my favourites. So obviously there were a lot of plays on the title. Dennis Fanning said, Those Things We Did. Matt Hanley said, That Thing You Too. Yeah. You know, we always yeah. like a bit of a sequel thing that. Bumpers McGee said, I Know That Thing You Did Last Summer. I was just thinking that one. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> uh, Drew Miller said, That Thing We Do In The Shadows. Oh, There you go. Crossover cult vampire movie. Yeah. Four Tipton Myram said, I know those things you did, Electric Boogaloo. People love a bit of Electric Boogaloo. Mm-hmm. Matthew Head said, that thing, question mark, did it. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Mouskill said, do the right thing you do. Crossover with do the right thing. Yep, yep. Isaiah Han said, that thing you do in Denver when you're dead. Mike Carey had a legitimate idea. He said, that thing you platoon, which follows the bass player as he makes his way through boot camp and then fights in Vietnam. And maybe some of the other band members appear as USO cameos. So that's good. Hmm. Oh, that'd be nice. Stan Ferguson, this is a good one. All these things that I've done. Like ah. A killer's it. That could work. Actually, a version of this film that was about the killers. Because the, yeah. kill- the killers are really interesting because aren't they all Mormons or something? Are they? Is it the killers who are all like super religious? Uh-huh. Even though they're, they're, like, I think that uh, definitely the lead singer was, uh, is he a Mormon, I think? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's a Mormon, the, the lead singer of the killers. Yeah, Mike Flowers, is it? Brandon. Is it? Brandon Flowers, Brandon. Brandon Flowers, yeah. Uh, Jacob Ben, I think you'll like this one, Harry. Call me by that thing you do. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> Matthew Hedge. Oh shit, there was that thing that I was supposed to do and I totally forgot. <laughs> oh, you got me a beer. <laughs> oh. John Scrafini said, that thing you do, as in D-E-U-X, do, too. Oh, yeah, so again, yeah. a good yeah. Ooh, bit, bit of pun work. Yeah. Chin T said, still doing that thing, huh? Question mark. <laughs> And Mike Carey, another one, said, I'm not saying I don't like that thing you do, but could you maybe do something else as well? <laughs> Great. Joe Herman said, that thing you done did. Brian Hunt said, that thing you... Dude, where's my car? <laughs> <laughs> Gina Radcliffe said, I have no answer. I just wanted to say, geez, Louise, I forgot how cute Tom Everett Scott was in this. I agree. Blokebusters podcast, at Blokebusters, that thing you didn't do, a parallel film following an unsuccessful band annoyed with the success of The Wonders and their attempts to ride on their coattails. They said, imagine the film killing Bono, but with less murder attempts. (laughs) And finally, We Watch Anything, at We Watch Anything, said, that thing that I know what you did last album, a teen one-hit wonder pop band go to a remote New England fishing town recording studio where they are slowly picked off by a vengeful ex-groupie who they all previously used horribly in one night of debauched post-show mayhem. Oh, gross. 
that's gross and dark, but I can see it. So you see it. Thanks, guys. There's some interesting ideas there. Yeah. And that was that thing you do. So uh, thank you very much, Julio, for joining us. It's really very appreciated. Oh, it, it, it was a blast. And I get once again, thank you very much for being a, a supporter on Patreon. It really means so much to us that anyone is willing to actually put money down to help our show and to show their appreciation. So thank you very very much I find it ridiculous because all I'm doing is sharing the voice that's inside my head <laughs> and the fact that people think it's 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 a good thing I, I, I don't understand it well don't queer the deal Harry <laughs> anyway but uh, would you like to take this opportunity to uh, tell us again just a little bit about the Contrarians podcast and what you guys do oh yeah yeah okay so uh, it's always it's such a pain to describe it because it really sounds more complicated than it is but I guess to begin with you guys are familiar with Rotten Tomatoes right the, the yes. website okay <laughs> So the show comes from the idea that Rotten Tomatoes is not very well understood as a website because their fresh and rotten scores are usually seen as a reflection of the quality of a movie when really Mm -hmm. it reflects more like the popularity of a movie. And sometimes those two things overlap, but sometimes they don't. And you can find really challenging, interesting movies that get a low rating just because they're not mainstream. But you know, people would go in and see that movie has like a 13% Rotten Tomatoes and then they would think that, oh, well, this sucks. And really what it could just mean is, oh, this movie's challenging. I might like it anyway. So to use Rotten Tomatoes as a tool to determine which movies you watch, I think it's not a good idea. And I think it shortchanges a lot of interesting movies. So what we do just to make it fun is we just pick a movie that has a high rating or a low rating in Rotten Tomatoes. And then we argue for the opposite case. And we do it in a very ridiculous way because the other thing we like to do is just to make fun of, of critics. And there's a lot of online criticism that, you know, gets through to Rotten Tomatoes or gets, you know, passed around a lot. But really, sometimes it's just like some angry guy typing something about a movie. So we alternate and we'll pick a, a movie that has a high rating. Like, let's say we did like an episode in Jaws, right? The, the Steven Spielberg movie about the shark. And uh, it has a really high rating. So we just did an episode where we just talking about it like we were shocked that we were offended that it was like anti-shark propaganda and that nobody takes (laughs) you know when you look at it from the point of view of the shark you know the shark was just doing its thing and then it became harassed and hunted by the man and then we'll do an episode on a movie that has like a really low score like uh you know we did uh, an episode on paul blart mall cop and that one again we just talked about about how it was actually a pretty accurate depiction of what it's like to be a retail worker and somebody that works at a mall <laughs> on, during the holidays and all that stuff. And then, you know, that's the first half of the show. And then on the second half of the show, we actually tell you how we really feel. And sometimes, like let's say in the case of Jaws, we actually agree it's a great movie, you know? So after spending the first part of the show talking trash about it, we'll say nice things about it and actually talk about how we feel about it. And then, you know, with Paul Blart, it was kind of like the same, you know, we'll pretend that we like it and then in the second half which is we call real talk we tell you okay we really we actually know this is not a good movie at all but what that does is <laughs> in the in the first half even though we're doing it in, in jest and we're trying to be funny about it it forces us to look to a movie through a lens that's different from popular opinion and you find sometimes that you you end up appreciating a movie that you really didn't care for originally or you end up seeing flaws in a movie that you actually thought was perfect so like when we did that thing you do, it just it became clear that it, partly because it's set in the 60s, you know, I guess, but it's it's such a white movie. And then when you actually get the black character is this ridiculous guy at the hotel that's just almost like a cartoon of the super cool, friendly black guy. You know, if it wasn't for the, the black jazz musicians at the very end, it would actually be problematic, I guess. But it was something that sometimes like in your uh, Love Actually episode, you know, it's like I can't. 
unlistened to that episode and all those flaws that you pointed <laughs> out that were very valid they're there and they're gonna be there next time i watch the movie I'm well aware of this. Ask what I <laughs> bloody hate about that episode. I make no apologies. Yeah, so there are times when we've kind of ruined some movies for ourselves, but then, by the same token, we've actually learned to appreciate some movies better. Uh, my co-host, Alex, he was very resistant to doing Elizabethtown, uh, the Cameron Crowe movie. And after we did it, he was like, you know what? It wasn't that bad because we're sitting there trying to force ourselves to say nice things about it. Eventually, we actually find really good things about it. So it, it, it's a lot of fun. And I like every 10 episodes, we'll do a gray area episode where we pick a movie that's uh, just halfway in the Rotten Tomatoes meter. So something that's in the 50%, 60% area where uh, we'll change the format to where one of us will defend it and one of us will attack it just to spice things up. And also because there's so many great movies that are fun to do that don't match the really high or really low score. So that way we can widen our array of movies, of, of options. But yeah, we, we have a lot of fun. We've been doing it for a while. We've I think we've gotten better at it. <laughs> Every time that somebody asks me if they should listen to the, epi- the the podcast, like where should they start? I was like, just start with the most recent stuff. As long as it's a movie that you've seen. We recap the movie, so it doesn't matter if you haven't seen it. But obviously you have a lot more fun if you've seen the movie before. But yeah, that's what it is. We're on our fourth year now. I was actually just listening to your Fantastic Mr. Fox episode yesterday, and I really, really enjoyed it. I liked your um, how offended you got by the idea that foxes could um, talk to some humans, but not others. Uh, but, but see, that's one thing that when you're watching the movie, you don't care. Because, I mean, at least if you're like, yeah. hey, you like the movie, you you don't really stop to, like, disassemble it. And uh, But then when you're looking for its flaws, you're like, wow, this doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah it's, a, it's a great show. And uh, how can people find you then if they want to check out uh, The Contrarians podcast? Uh, so just look up The Contrarians on iTunes. Uh, we're also on SoundCloud. You can go to our website, which is wearethecontrarians.com. Uh, All summer long, we're going to do John Travolta movies. We're calling it the, oh, yes. the Summer of Travolta. And I am so pumped to do it. Oh, fantastic. Cool. So yeah, do check out The Contrarians podcast. It's a great show. And you can find them at wearethecontrarians.com or by searching for them on iTunes and other podcast platforms. And uh, if you like our show, obviously, you can find Beyond the Box Set on all good podcasting platforms, including iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. Uh, you can also find us on our website, beyondtheboxset.com, and on most forms of social media, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search Beyond the Box Set, and we should show up. If you like the show, please subscribe, leave a review, or become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com forward slash beyondtheboxset, where we have a lot of really cool incentives, which uh, you can gain access to by contributing as much or as little as you like, as we discussed earlier in the show. And next week, Harry, we have another two-hander again. Mm-hmm. So it's your turn to pick a film. Do you have a film prepared? I do, yes. Great. What are you going to um, subject me to? Okay, so, John, did you study English? Did I study English? Yeah, I did. do have a degree in English literature. I don't like to shout about it, but I do, in fact, yes. Cool, cool, cool. Did you do English in, uh, in GCSE in high school? I have a degree, so yeah, I did also get through that GCSE phase before. Cool, <laughs> sure. Were, were there any, uh, any books that you studied at all? Have you been going through my... No, 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 just, I'm just... Well, yeah, I, I did a lot of the stuff. I did One Flew of the Cookie's Nest. I did yeah. The Handmaid's Tale. I, I did a lot. Why? Did you do Of Mice and Men? Oh, I never did. Wow, okay. Oh. I mean, I've read it, but... Yeah. All right, well, uh, that's our film for next week. Of Mice and Men? Wow, we're going highbrow for a week. Interesting. So wait, that's, that's, a, that's a, a, Is that the Gary Sinise, uh, John Malkovich version? That's the one. Okay, cool. That's, Ooh, that's the only one I've seen, because I think there's another one. Probably, there must be other versions. It's such a famous book. Yeah. I don't know. So, okay, so the Gary Sinise and uh, John Malkovich take on... Uh, wow, that's a curveball. Mm-hmm. Wasn't, wasn't prepared for that. Interesting. Okay, looking forward to it. Cool. So tune in next week for Of Mice and Men. And Julio, once again, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you and, for uh, having me. Welcome, and I'm sure we'll have you back sometime. Oh, yeah, thanks well, for coming on. Yep. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll see you next week. So bye. See you later. Say bye, Julio. <laughs> oh, bye. <laughs> <laughs>
Tekes!